Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This episode, we're bouncing to one of my least favorite Austin books, the story of Emma, a selfish, conceited, annoying busybody who, despite her poor behavior, still manages to get the guy in the end. We'll get into that more in a bit, but first, some Austin context. Emma is the fourth novel by Jane Austen, published in three volumes in 1815. It's a story about social status and love and how complicated the former makes the latter, which is sneakily very similar to Pride and Prejudice. In my opinion, though, the main difference is that Elizabeth is far more of a sympathetic character than Emma Woodhouse. Emma is young. I will give her that. But I just, I had never fell in love with Emma, but I did fall in love with Elizabeth. It took Jane a little over a year to finish the novel, which she submitted to London-based publisher John Murray. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Murray was a bit of a cad, not surprising for the time, of course. He offered Jane 450 pounds in return for the copyrights of Emma and Sense and Sensibility and Mansfield Park. He wanted all the copyrights, but she decided that no, I'm going to keep the copyright. And Murray eventually published Emma on commission, an initial print of 2000. And once again, Austin chose to publish anonymously. The reviews were mixed among her friends and family, but praised the author's humor. They thought this was a funny one. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think it's funny. We'll keep going. There was an anonymous reviewer in the quarterly review. Rumor has it that it was Sir Walter Scott. He said of Emma, the author's knowledge of the world and the peculiar tact with which she presents characters that the reader cannot fail to recognize reminds us reminds us something of the merits of the Flemish school of painting. The subjects are not often elegant and certainly never grand, but they are finished up to nature and with a precision which delights the reader. I have actually been to Sir Walter Scott's home in Abbotsford. It's in the borderlands in Scotland, um, just kind of, again, in the border. You're really close to the English, the England border side. But um, there's this spot as you're driving up to his house that he, it's, rumored or believed that he always loved to go there. It's his view. And it's just, you're looking out over these pastures and it's just green and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And then you get up to this home and I mean, it's kind of like a tiny castle. It's just, it's amazing. The gardens and there's a a river or a stream that comes behind the house. And so we go into this home and we are walking around and we're getting a tour. And the first room you come into, it has all this like medieval stuff in it, kind of looks like where he kept all his knickknacks. There's just stuff everywhere on the walls. And you're kind of like, hmm, he was a hoarder. <laughs> and then you get walked in to the library. And I was with my parents. They were on the trip and actually Watson was on the trip. And so, you know, we are wandering around looking at the books and talking about how um, they, they didn't hide, but they put certain books in different areas um, because like all of the books that had I can't remember, like demonology and that kind of thing. They put them over here where there was a place to sit so people wouldn't make out there or something like that. But so you're walking around and all of a sudden the tour guide says, oh, and uh, there's a first edition Jane Austen in this room. Well, Watson and I, of course, are, you know, We've got to find this first edition. So that's all we're kind of focused on. We never did find it. They did talk about that they bring in volunteers a couple times a year to kind of clean the books. We're like, how do we get in on that gig? Then they walk you into the dining room. And and the tour guide was like, yes. And 
This is the actual table, and Jane Austen would often come to Sir Walter Scott's home, um, and they would argue over literature while they were eating dinner. And so, <laughs> like, we're almost crying. We're like, Jane Austen wasn't here. It just, it's so amazing when you go to some of these places, and you've, you're, you're walking the halls that these historical figures have walked. Like I said in the first episode that of the season, that is just absolutely amazing to me, the endurance that Jane Austen and her works are have had and so you just you're standing there in a place where she had been with another renowned author where he lived this was his home and to know that they had these conversations in that place was a little overwhelming if you ever have the chance if you ever find yourself in Scotland a stop at Abbotsford highly recommend they actually have like a bed and breakfast on the premises now and I would I would love to go back and actually stay there it would be amazing anywho back to the little research that I did I read an interesting article called the novel revolutionary John Mullen wrote it back in the Guardian in 2015 and he said quote Emma published 200 years ago this month was revolutionary not because of its subject matter Austin's jesting description to Anna, I don't know who Anna was, of the perfect subject for a novel, three or four families in a country village, fits it well. It was certainly not revolutionary because of any intellectual or political content, but it was revolutionary in its form and technique. Its heroine is a self-deluded young woman with the leisure and power to meddle in the lives of her neighbors. The narrative was radically experimental because it was designed to share her delusions. The novel bent narration through the distorted lens of the protagonist's mind. He later then goes on to say that the whole point of the novel is Emma's snobbishness and calls it integrity that Austin maintains that line even when her protagonist is in the right, that she never drops um, that personality trait, that snobbishness. Quote, we both share her judgments and watch her making them. So maybe it's revolutionary, but it doesn't really change my feelings about <laughs> Emma Woodhouse. The story is saved, however. By Mr. Knightley. The one character willing to chastise her, calling her out on her prejudice and scolding and mentoring her along the way. And because pop culture is a delight, Mr. Knightley is often played by a dashing young man. And that's the lens through which we're going to explore the mini adaptation of Emma in pop culture through Mr. Knightley. Before we start our list, a very concise summary of the story, just in case you aren't acquainted with it. Emma Woodhouse is a precocious young woman of means who has taken it upon herself to become a matchmaker. She likes to meddle in people's lives. She befriends this girl named Harriet, a woman of unknown parentage, and proceeds to help the poor woman fall in love with multiple men throughout the course of the story, constantly determining that one, Harriet is not wealthy enough to draw their attention, two, that the men are actually enamored with her and not her less confident friend, and three, that she is in the habit of making poor life choices and should have just let Harriet marry a local farmer who was actually very much in love with her. Emma loves gossip, her father, and being the life of the party. She also discovers throughout the novel that she loves her neighbor and dearest friend, Mr. Knightley, who is also a man of means, but who has a gentle respect and compassion for people who aren't as fortunate. Knightley does a great job of drawing attention to Emma's flaws while also, spoiler, being in love with her. That was not my best summary, but it will have to do. Now for the list. 
All right. So my fifth favorite Mr. Knightley is in another web series, actually, by Pemberley Digital, the group that first created the Lizzie Bennett Diaries. Emma approved. It started back in October of 2013, and it ended up being about 72 episodes following Emma Woodhouse, who runs a lifestyle coaching slash matchmaking slash event planning company with her business partner and dear friend, Alex Knightley. Now, it's George Knightley in the books. I don't know why they made him Alex. Whatevs. Emma is self-assured in this. She's confident and constantly getting herself into trouble through stubbornness and pure social blindness. <laughs> For a supposed lifestyle guru, it's her own life she needs to work on, which is not surprising. Alex Knightley was played by Brent Bailey. You may have seen him in some commercials and maybe the bit part or two in Criminal Minds or Rizzoli and Isles and heart of Dixie, but he's, he's an unknown. I really, that's one thing I really like about, and I think I mentioned in the last episode, really like about these web series that they take actors and actresses who are just getting started or who have not had a big break quite yet. Um, and you kind of fall in love with them that way. You don't need the big stars to tell a really good story. His portrayal of Knightley was sincere and patient. He had great chemistry with Joanna Sotomora, who played Emma, and it was easy to believe that he'd kind of been harboring feelings for her for a very long time. Apparently, they became an item during the shoot, too, and maybe that's why they look like they have so much chemistry. As a modern adaptation, this one really works. So Emma's busybody nature fits nicely into I don't know, the influencer environment and Knightley as her business partner brings that extra element of conflict into the story. If they get together, what would that do to the business? Um, and he's cute. Knightley is cute. And every adaptation, you really appreciate how kind and gentle he is with everyone he meets besides Frank Churchill. And Brent Bailey has a timidity that really works. I didn't like it more than Lizzie Bennet Diaries, but it's still a great ad adaptation. And if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend it's, of course, free on YouTube. My fourth favorite Mr. Knightley goes to Johnny Lee Miller in the 2009 BBC miniseries. So it's a period piece, an attempt at true Austin, and this one is an interesting case. They actually skew Emma younger. She felt almost childlike to me in her relationships and her behavior. She still makes the same bad decisions, but there's a different kind of immaturity about the performance that really stood out to me, which made me then Google what the age difference was supposed to be between Emma and Mr. Knightley, because I had never Googled that before, and I decided it was icky. Uh, 37, he was supposed to be 37 and she's supposed to be 21. No wonder he was chastising her and willing to call her out. Uh, but if they were childhood friends, cause that's what they say, especially when he's de declaring his love to her, uh, my, my dear friend, could there have also been an element of grooming then? Cause oh, that's 16 year difference. It's a, it's a little weird. I don't want to think about it, except now that's all I can think about. Also made the mistake of watching some YouTube videos and found a clip from a 1996 TV adaptation with Kate Beckinsale as Emma, very young Kate Beckinsale as Emma, and Mark Strong, who I love dearly, especially when he's bald now. Um, and in this adaptation, he professes his love. And then he says, I have not, I don't remember hearing this in any of the other ones. And I just rewatched them. So I know it wasn't in there. He says, I held you in my arms when you were three weeks old. Ugh, ugh, ugh. We're just going to keep going. Back to 
back to the Johnny Lee Miller 2009 BBC miniseries. Uh, Dumbledore plays her fa- her father, Michael Gambon, who I've just now decided is my favorite character in the story, just in case there was some grooming involved with Knightley that has wigged me out. So I've decided that now Mr. Woodhouse is going to be my favorite character, even though we're going to continue to talk about Mr. <laughs> Mr. Knightley. He's... He's brilliant. He's a delicate flower. He worries a lot, doesn't like to leave the home. Um, doesn't he's so sad that his daughters are moving away. It's very he's very, very sweet. And that is why Emma is so very protective of him and doesn't want to leave home either. Alice from The Last of the Mohicans uh, plays Anne Weston, Emma, Emma's governess and friend. And of course, Johnny Lee Miller plays Mr. Knightley. He does a grouchier, more gruff Knightley, which makes sense because that's typically a Johnny Lee Miller role. Less chemistry between the two in this one and a little hard to believe he's been harboring feelings for a while. But it's oh so much fun to watch him shoot down Mr. Elton, Mrs. Elton from her um, party planning schemes he just had, there's a, a stoicness, a confidence that Johnny Lee Miller has that I really like that he brings to the move, the show. The series was directed by Jim O'Hanlon, who appears to be a go-to director for BBC miniseries. That's about the only thing on his directing credits. Sandy Welch wrote the screenplay. Same thing. Looks like they used to pull her in quite about a bit to write a miniseries or two. She wrote Emma, Jane Eyre, North and South. So some you might've heard of, uh, just a, one interesting tidbit. So they said the off white striped dress worn by one of Mrs. Goddard's students when Emma Woodhouse first notices Harriet Smith is the same costume Kira Knightley wore to Pemberley in Pride and Prejudice in 2005. Lots of costume sharing from former Regency era productions. In fact, if you hop on the trivia section for the miniseries on IMDb, that's basically the entire list of trivia. (laughs) They just borrowed all these other shows clothes, which I love. All right. So that was number four. My third favorite Mr. Knightley goes to Jeremy Northam in the 1996 film version starring Gwyneth Paltrow as Emma. This version of Knightley was my first Regency era crush. Oh, he was so sophisticated. And he had this great hair, just a great full swooping head of hair. I loved it. Do I love Paltrow? Um, She's all right. She's all right. She gets the snooty side of Emma's personality just right. But you also get Tony Collette as Harriet, Ewan McGregor as Frank Churchill, and Alan Cumming, Alan Cumming, as Mr. Elton, which are all delights. Emma skews older, at least in poise in this one, so less icky because they make Mr. Knightley feel about the same age. There's definitely an air of... uh, Matthew McFadden in Pride and Prejudice in this portrayal of Emma's childhood friend. Definitely chemistry. And while I wouldn't go as far as to say that Knightley seems to be longing for Emma the entire two hours, you can really tell he cares about her. So the declaration at the end isn't surprising. There's a few times where I think I mentioned it in Pride and Prejudice. Um, Mr. Darcy is helping Elizabeth into a carriage. They touch hands, skin on skin, and as he's walking away, he kind of stretches his hand out like, oh, I got to touch her. And so you have some of those moments between Jeremy Northam and Gwyneth Paltrow in this one that I always kind of loved. He's just, he's adorable. I got so, I would always get so excited when I would see him in other things. He, he was one of my first <laughs> first movie crushes, apparently. The movie was de- directed by Douglas McGrath. He only has eight directing credits to his name. The only other one I had heard of was Nicholas Nickleby. Uh, I did. If you haven't seen that one, it's it's decent. It was okay. He also wrote the screenplay for Emma, which is rather interesting. I wonder if this was some kind of a 
a passion project for him. Why Jane Austen's Emma? The writing and directing of it. Very interesting. The movie, of course, again came out in 1996. It had a $6 million budget. It only made $240,000 its opening weekend, but would go on to gross over $22 million at the box office, which is not bad. A few interesting tidbits. Ewan McGregor later regretted appearing in the film, saying, My decision-making was wrong. It's the only time I've done that, and I learned from it, you know? So I'm glad of that, because it was early on, and I learned my lesson. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going Southern in my reading of this, and not Scottish. I don't know why. It's a good film, but I'm just not very good in it. It doesn't help that I'm wearing the world's worst wig. It's quite a laugh, checking that wig out. It is a bad wig. If you haven't seen it, you should go watch it because it's pretty bad. Mrs. Bates and Miss Bates. So they are um, in the movie, in the book too, of course. They play kind of a, not impoverished, but they, they don't have a lot of money. They are a poor uh, mother-daughter who live in town who Emma befriends in a sense. She often goes there and talks to them and leaves them food and that kind of thing. And they have this this niece, Jane Fairfax, that they're always talking about and telling stories. And Emma is actually quite jealous of Jane Fairfax and the attention that she gets from them. And it's actually Miss Bates, the daughter who uh, rightly gets her, her, her feelings hurt at a picnic when Emma basically tells her she's the most boring person on the face of the planet. So Mrs. Bates and Miss Bates in this adaptation, our mother and daughter in the film, are played by real-life mother and daughter Felita. Felita Law and Sophie Thompson, who are also real-life mother and sister to Academy Award-winning actress and screenwriter Emma Thompson. Did not know that. That is very neat. Thompson revealed that it was a coincidence that she and her mother were cast alongside each other as the casting director had their names on separate lists. And finally, Doug Douglas McGrath had initially wanted to write a modern version of the novel set on the EP. Upper East Side of New York City. Harvey Weinstein liked the idea of a contemporary take on the novel. McGrath, though, was unaware that Clueless was already in production until plans for Emma were well underway. Speaking of Clueless, my second favorite, Mr. Knightley, goes to Paul Rudd, who plays Josh in the modern adaptation. Alicia Silverstone as Cher plays the Emma Woodhouse character, a high school student who believes herself to be a matchmaker and enjoys kind of the power she wields at school. She knows she's popular. She's also got money, and so she kind of likes to wield that around, get what she wants. When the girl she befriends and elevates, Ty, who plays the Harriet, um, role, gets a crush on Cher's former stepbrother, Josh. Cher realize, realizes that she too has feelings for him. Not really incest, but does or should at least give the average viewer a little pause. Like, is this right that they, they get together? And the fact that Cher is a sophomore in high school and Josh is in college, like established in college, not a newly minted freshman, we're borderline it, guys. But overall, it's a gem of a movie and a pop culture staple. You get L.A. and the Valley in the 1990s with slang and fashion, a very unique take on the high school experience. Uh, the Emma role in this particular adaptation is a little different as well. Cher likes to matchmake, but she's naive about it. There's an innocence to the character that you don't see in the other adaptations. She really is clueless for lack of a better word never really kind of understanding what she how what she says and does affects other people you, you i don't know in some of the adaptations 
it's almost as if Emma knows what she's doing is wrong and she does it anyway um, because she is oftentimes just very selfish. But I, I don't get that feeling out of Cher. And you do genuine, be, genuinely believe that she wants to be a better person. She spends part of the movie, you know, she's helping her teachers. And while that's really to get a grade, she also just wants to help them. And then she's um, donating items and cleaning out closets, you know, to help people that have lost a all of their stuff. So there's, there's a sweet side to her as well. Um, and so when she does kind of make those mistakes, they're mistakes you can live with because you see her growing. Her brain is not fully formed in the movie. So she's, you know, she's growing into a woman. As for Paul Rudd, oh, the man doesn't age. He's goofy and he's kind and thoughtful and he's just perfectly Paul Rudd. I mean, Paul Rudd forever. You don't get as much Mr. Knightley in this particular adaptation, and he doesn't do quite as much um, putting Cher in her place as most Mr. Knightleys do with Emma, but he's he's that kind of voice in the back of her head reminding her that, hey, you can be more than you think you can be. It was directed uh, by Amy Heckerling, another, uh, and she also wrote it, so it's another Emma Passion Project. I wonder what it is about Emma. She also directed, did not know this, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, National Lampoon's European Vacation, and the Look Who's Talking franchise. Very interesting, Amy Heckerling. The movie, again, came out in 1995. A lot of love for Austin in the mid-90s. It, of course, stars Alicia Silverstone as Cher, Stacey Dash as Dion, Brittany Murphy as Ty, Paul Rudd as Josh, Donald Faison as Murray, Breckenmeyer as Travis, and Jeremy Sisto as Elton. It had a $12 million budget, made $10 million in its opening weekend, and went on to make $56 million worldwide. A few fun facts. Plot, characters, themes, and values are all based on Jane Austen's novel Emma. Amy Heckerling was asked by Paramount to write a film for teenagers, and she instantly remembered the novel she read as a teenager. I don't, I don't know if that's an interesting connection. I don't know if I would have gone there. Um, very fascinating imagination. I love it. One of the promotional items distributed to tie in with the film was a booklet called How to Speak Cluelessly. In it was a lexicon of many of the invented terms used for the clueless world, some of which became part of real teen lingo at the time. An example was a Baldwin a, being a very handsome male, as in the famous sibling actors. I, I don't know. I was very much alive in the 90s, and I don't remember actually using the term Baldwin or hearing anybody actually use the term Baldwin. Maybe that was a California thing. Although Josh is in college and is older than the other characters who are still in high school, Stacy Dash, who plays Cher's best friend Dion, is actually two years older than Paul Rudd. She was 29, playing a high school sophomore. Actors who auditioned for this film included Reese Witherspoon for Cher, Terrence Howard for Murray, Jeremy Renner for Christian, and Josh, Zo for Christian and Josh, sorry, Zoe Deschanel for Amber and Cher, Owen Wilson for Travis, Leah Remini for Ty, Seth Green for Travis, and Lauren Hill for Dion. That would, any of those options would have made a completely different movie. Oh, so that was number two. No seamless segue here. Just my number one favorite, Mr. Knightley. And that goes to Johnny Flynn in the 2020 historical comedy, Emma. If you haven't seen this version yet, you absolutely should. It's almost as if Wes Anderson decided to dip his toe into Austin. 
it's stylized and ridiculous in the best way possible. There's really nothing like it. It's the same story, same old Emma, sort of. Anya Taylor-Joy definitely puts her own spin and her eccentric look. She has the biggest eyes, biggest eyes, really level up the conceit and confidence of the Woodhouse character. It's how she holds herself. She's so stick straight in her posture and um, she just has not a blankness to her face but like she's analyzing everything which just makes the character a little more interesting. Josh O'Connor uh, he is just a role and a delight in all things. Um, I fell in love with him on PBS Masterpiece on the Durls and Corfu. He plays um, Prince Charles in The Crown uh, when he first appears, is a charming yet annoying delight as Mr. Elton. Miranda Hart, she was in Call the Midwife. Um, she's Miss Bates, and she's just sweet and kind of docile. And Bill Nighy. Bill Nighy as Mr. Woodhouse, Emma's constantly cold father, is just, he's pure Nighy. I, I just, I get excited every time I see him in a movie. Much like I said Mark Strong. I just, I love them. <laughs> I love some of these British actors. But Johnny Flynn steals the show as Mr. Knightley. The character of Mr. Knightley likes to walk places, much like Elizabeth Bennet. It's something he comments on. But there's this one scene where he realizes he has feelings for Emma at a ball. And he, you know, they all start to go home. They have this moment where they're just kind of staring at each other. She rides off in the carriage. And he's about to get in his. And he's like, nope. And he decides to just run to her house. And the action of this man in Regency era attire running, um, not even running, just kind of trotting. It looks so out of place in Austin, but it works. I just love it so much. I just would rewind. The first time I saw it, I just kept rewinding and watching it over and over and over again. They seem the same age, which makes the whole thing feel a lot better. He's just so darn adorable and he's got these sideburns and you can tell that he genuinely he does the part really well in that you can tell he genuinely cares for her and has and does throughout the movie but it's also just the the genuine hurt he feels when he watches her say something or do something to somebody else that hurts them um when he, she kind of snaps back at Miss Bates at the picnic and makes her feel horrible. You just kind of see it in his face. He almost kind of deflates a little bit. Not not only because he feels so very bad for Miss Bates, but he also just is so very disappointed in his friend because he knows she can do better than that. So just a great adaptation. You need to see it. The movie was directed by Autumn DeWilde, who appears to have directed music videos almost exclusively. This was her film debut. Uh, they must have been good if a studio trusted her with this job, and she totally knocked it out of the park. The screenplay was written by Eleanor Catton, who also has nothing to her name. The only other thing on her IMDb is episodes of The Luminaries. The movie had a $10 million budget, only made $234,000 its opening weekend, but went on to make $26 million worldwide. I really wonder how it would have done had there not been a global pandemic that shut down theaters. I don't know if it would have done a whole lot better, but I think I would have been at the theaters to see it. I like Austin enough and I follow these adaptations enough. And it's again, quirky. It's a quirky looking movie. It really does almost look like a Wes Anderson with the costuming and the colors. It's a vibrant, vibrant movie. There are so many colors in this movie that I think I would have gone. 
And a final few fun facts. Neither Emma nor Mr. Knightley are wearing gloves during their dance together. Scandalous! While all the other characters dancing are gloved. Director Autumn DeWilde had said that she wanted them to have bare hands. She cleared it with the film's etiquette expert and was allowed to do that because the characters had just eaten dinner where they would have removed their gloves. It added to the sexual tension between Emma and Mr. Knightley during the last dance. And my other one is Josh O'Connor, who plays Mr. Elton, and Angus Emery, who plays the servant Bartholomew, had appeared together previously in The Crown as Prince Charles and Prince Edward, respectfully. It drove me nuts for a while because I knew I'd seen um, Angus Emery before the the servant Bartholomew. And then I was like, wait, he was Prince Edward. That is how I, I think I've mentioned this before. It's how I spend most of my time watching things. I'm like, what else were they in? Or IMD being, it's, it's a situation, but it's fine. It's how I get my trivia questions when I host trivia. But that's it for today. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Emma adaptation? I would love for you to share in the comments on the podcast, on the socials, if you do, the posts that I put about this episode. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome. So very awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture, well, they can find the podcast as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. I would be so very grateful. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today, and I will see you next time.